I Think Therefore I Fan podcast is generously supported by our listeners. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, go to our webpage, that's IThinkThereforeIFan.com, all one word, click on the link that says Donate, and follow the instructions. Your support is greatly appreciated. Spoiler warning time. In this episode, we discuss X-Men, Mr. Robot, Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, and God's Not Dead. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Everybody, thanks for tuning in. This week we're talking about God, right? A, a pretty big topic, pretty big concept. Um, maybe more specifically, the topic of this week's episode is arguments for the existence of God. And uh, originally we had planned on doing um, an episode that looks at arguments for the existence of God as well as arguments against. Um, but we did some interviews um, and we got a lot of good material there. And as we were putting all together, it, it became pretty clear that we had more than enough for a full episode already. So we're gonna we're gonna do the second half of it, right? Arguments against the existence of God uh, in the first episode of season three, which will be out in four or five weeks or so. Since this episode turned out to be such a, a large episode, um, at least time wise. Uh, we've decided to skip a couple of the usual segments. So we'll be back next time with the What We're Liking segment and the um, listener music. But all this seems very appropriate, right? I'm reminded of the the great bit in Monty Python's The Meaning of Life where uh, Michael Palin is a, you know, a priest or a vicar or some such and he's, he's giving his um, sermon and it's just a whole series of Oh God, you're so big, you're so huge, you're so massively huge, so forth. Um, so, you know, an episode on God probably ought to be pretty big. Yeah, I mean, so we had initially when we thought about the episode we were going to do this week, we thought about the problem of evil, which one, which is one of the most famous arguments against the existence of God. And you see this come up uh, right and left in pop culture. So one of the most noteworthy examples of it that I can think of as in um, Mr. Robot. And we'll address that in the first episode of season three. But we thought initially, well, why don't we give it some balance so that we're looking at some arguments that we see in pop culture for, some arguments we see in pop culture against, and, and people can assess those. So uh, like you mentioned, Richard, um, uh, the interviews that we did were so rich in themselves that we, and, and, and also they were they went into so much depth and, and length that it didn't make sense to, to do all of them. And if uh, anyone's worthy of an entire episode, it's, it's God. Right? <laughs> uh, so uh, in preparation for this episode, I was doing a little internet research, trying to see... Off the top of my head, I couldn't think of any um, f- 
films or television shows that took on head on the arguments for the existence of God. Now, that's not to say that there isn't plenty of religion in pop culture. There's tons of it. I mean, maybe you see more religion than not in, right, in right. pop culture. And you get little bits of hand-waving at arguments where it'll be pithy one-liners, like, boy, how could there not be a God if things are this beautiful? But not substantive. Right. That's the that's what I was going to mention, too. The, the uh, how could you get all this natural beauty without God kind of thing you see. And you see... You know, things like when I think about like exorcism movies where there are priests, there are lo- there's lots of discussion of like balance in the universe between good and evil. Um, Two sides of the force, apparently. Yeah. I can think of a lot of elements of pop culture that do a kind of faith versus science thing. And so you sometimes see a little bit of argumentation there. So um, one film that I came up that kept coming up in my internet search was Contact. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't seen that in years. It's been, it came out like 21 years ago, but um, there's kind of a, but, and I, and I believe it's based on a Carl Sagan novel. novel. Yeah, so, yeah. so there's this faith uh, uh, science dichotomy there. Mm-hmm. And then of course the X-Files is just features that prominently a faith science dichotomy, but you're still not seeing explicit arguments for the existence of God. Mm-hmm. And I know to some extent, maybe that's appropriate and um, is is sort of in keeping with ordinary practice insofar as I think, you know, Kierkegaard thought that arguments for the existence of God were the wrong way about going about the enterprise, that religion is inherently faith-based. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you see a lot of that in pop culture. Uh, so, so anyway, I thought... Uh, well, we both thought that uh, we'd explore these arguments, whether they come up in pop culture or not. And some of our some of the people we've interviewed are going to uh, use pop culture as examples throughout their discussion. Yeah, so there's there's some nice um, tie-in there. I mean, the one sort of exception to everything that you've just said um, might be a movie like God's Not Dead, but even that, it's it's such a you know kind of one-sided lip service. Right. You know, there, there's there's not a lot of real attention to the the detail. And and in talking about this, you know, um, one of my concerns is that you know, in just contemporary discourse on all sorts of things, but especially when it comes to religion, um, there there's so much animosity and, and vitriol, um, and which is exactly what you see in a movie like God's Not Dead. Um, you know, criticizing of the other view and, and so forth, that we thought it would be nice to actually get some experts on board, people that, they, they, you know, teach these arguments, study these arguments, um, and in, in many cases are convinced by these arguments to just simply say, here's the arguments for the existence of God that, that we like. Here's the ones we find compelling. Here's what we find compelling about it, right? A, a, an earnest look at the arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, seems better than the sort of treatment that you might get in a... You know, a movie like God's Not Dead Anyway, where, um, yeah, they, they don't give the strongest versions of the argument, but then they have everybody harumph at the right time, and, mm-hmm. and you're supposed to come away feeling like you've, you've gained something. Right. Great. So, um, shall we turn to the interviews? Let's do it. Our first interview is with Josh Rasmussen. Josh teaches philosophy at Azusa Pacific University. Hi, Josh. Hello. Hi, thanks, sir, um, for joining us today. I, I appreciate it. So, um, thank let, you. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's dive right in. Um, so, can you tell our listeners about a particular argument or a set of arguments 
um, a type of argument for the existence of God that you find particularly interesting or compelling? Yeah, sure. So I've thought about this question of God's existence. One thing that's occurred to me is that different arguments will appeal differently to different people based on just a wide variety of background considerations. Um, but when I think about the existence and nature of ourselves, persons, uh, we have consciousness, we have thoughts, we have feelings. There are all these sort of remarkable qualities within us. And as I, as I think about that and reflect on that, that leads me into an argument for the existence of God that I find quite interesting, quite compelling. Um, maybe I could put it in the form of an argument seed. So a, a simple form would go like this. Premise one, persons would not exist if the foundation of existence, so the foundation of everything, the ultimate sort of foundation of things, were purely impersonal. So if, if, if you just have particles at the foundation, probably you're not going to get persons. In fact, one might even argue that you couldn't get persons um, ultimately from non-persons. Second premise, persons do exist, and then therefore the foundation of existence is personal. Oh, interesting. So that would be an outline of the argument. Would you like me to sort of expand upon kind of why I would find that compelling? Yeah, yeah. T tell, me, tell me what you like about it. It sounds great. Yeah, so one thing I like about it is that um, it's based on something like each person can check for themselves within their own experience. So like you can check in your own mind uh, that you have thoughts. Now thoughts are very familiar, but the, the familiar is not thereby insignificant. This is one of the things I feel like I've been kind of realizing lately is just that the things that are maybe the most familiar to us, we have a temptation of thinking of them as, as insignificant. But if you just think about it, like reality includes thoughts. Mm -hmm. why, does, why does reality include thoughts? I mean, you might wonder why does reality include anything? I mean, it would be simpler if there was just nothing, right? right if there's right. going to be something, why is the something that exists going to include such things as thoughts and feelings and people who can even wonder whether God exists? I mean, that, that's striking to me. Mm -hmm. um, and, and each person can see that in themselves. You don't have to rely on expert testimony or the latest science to see whether you have thoughts, whether you have feelings. Um, Great. So you're, so you're thinking and, thoughts here is like a, as opposed to just you know, mere particles or whatever sort of mere things you well, can so that, build yeah, out of particles. You know, that's, that's an open question. You know, could thoughts be analyzed purely in terms of packs of particles? Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I, I met a philosopher once who denied that he had thoughts. In fact, he denied his own existence. It was kind of strange. Wow. The gave, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was, he was serious. And I said, well, what do you think about... Um, your own ability to see your own thoughts. And what his argument was that he didn't think packs of particles could produce persons and thoughts. And so in a way, he would actually grant this, this first premise. Um, and I make this point, I bring up the story just to illustrate that you don't have to already believe in God uh, to find that first premise that persons wouldn't come purely from particles um, compelling. I mean, there are people who don't believe in God. I mean, in fact, this this friend, his argument went from the other direction, that the foundation of things is purely particles, therefore there would never be people. You can make this argument um, as an in-principle argument. So you might think there's a problem, a kind of construction error, like just like you can't build fire out of water, you can't build this sort of first-person um, qualitative property of, of feeling and thinking purely out of particles that maybe they can act or function as if they think, right? 
but acting like you think isn't the same as actually having that inner first-person experience of thinking. So you, you could argue that there's an in-principle problem, um, but you could also argue more modestly that there's a, a kind of probability problem. And so this takes us back to the sort of what it takes to get a reality set up uh, to produce the kinds of beings that can think and feel. And I've actually done some um, research on the evolution of, uh, of biological structures using computer simulations. And I was investigating kind of what it takes to get an evolution in which there are these self-replicating uh, things to move in an upward direction towards increases of complexity. So, mm -hmm. I mean, on, on one level, you might wonder whether mere increases of complexity can cause a categorical shift from non-reason to reason, from non-conscious to conscious. But even if that could happen, even, even if that is possible in principle, there's also this just fine-tuning problem of what it takes to set up an evolutionary system. And what I found, and this matches um, other research, is that it takes a lot of uh, setup for the computer to produce any kind of evolution that moves in a direction that's remotely interesting. And I mean, the creatures that, quote, evolved in my computer simulation didn't exhibit anything like the uh, sophistication of, of um, self-replicating or self-repairing uh, technologies that are exhibited in our bodies. Um, and so persons have thoughts, consciousness, bodies, and all of those things seem to call out for a deeper explanation. And so what I find interesting about this premise is that each person can see for themselves that they have thoughts, they have experiences, they have um, a body with biological complexity, and then each person can ask from their own perspective, okay, what best makes sense of that? And from where I stand, it, it seems like the best ultimate explanation is going to be in terms of a, a personal foundation. Nice. Interesting. Great. Well, thank you very much for um, sharing that with us today. It's been great chatting with you. Sure. Thank you. Cheers. It's been a pleasure. Our next interview is with Greg Spenlove. Greg teaches philosophy at Utah Valley University. Hi, Greg. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Greg. Hi, Richard. Hi, Rachel. Thank you for having me. Good. Yeah. So let's, let's dive right in. Um, our, our first question for you is, can you tell us about an argument for the existence of God that you find compelling or interesting or would just like to share with our listeners? Sure. So one argument that I've been thinking about lately is Aquinas's first argument or his first way. Um, and for a long time, I rejected this argument, but recently I've come to find it pretty interesting, um, maybe even troubling. It's, it's uh, causing me to, I guess, reassess my own view of, of what God is. Um, so oh, that's interesting. one reason why I find yeah. it very interesting. Yeah. So I guess we can just get right into the argument. Um, a couple of things I like about it is that it, it starts with a simple observation that things change, and then it applies a couple of, I think, rather intuitively plausible metaphysical principles and draws the conclusion that there's something in the universe that changes things but isn't changed itself. Um, so sometimes this is called the unchanged changer or that it moves things but isn't itself moved, so it's the unmoved mover. Mm -hmm. uh, so the first premise in the argument 
is just that things change. And we've got, I think, plenty of examples of this uh, in every ordinary day experience. Yeah, so we've got acorns moving into oak trees. We've got infants developing into adults. And then in popular culture, I think we've got a lot of examples as well. So we've got humans becoming vampires, becoming zombies. People (laughs) used to think Louis C.K. was funny, and now they don't. (laughs) Exactly. They don't think he's funny anymore. Uh, He's trying to be funny again. Uh, And then I was also thinking uh, in the X-Men, you've got shapeshifters. Oh, great. Yeah. that can change from looking human to their uh, mutant selves. So, for instance, Raven can change from looking human uh, and then going into her blue form, Mystique, or something like that. That's so Raven. Uh, so we've got, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My wife and I loved that show growing up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that seems to be pretty obvious that, that things are changing. But what I really like about this argument is it works with a specific view of what it means to change. Uh, So change on this argument means that there are potentials that these um, objects have that are being realized, that are being actualized. And a potential is just the way something could be. It's not actually that way, but it could be that way. And that's just not a statement about logic. It's a real feature that the um, object actually has. Hmm. So Raven actually has the potential to be a human form, right? Mm -hmm. Or in the form of mystique. Um, So that's an an actual feature that objects have. And so instead of the first premise really means things change, it would be something like potentials are realized or actualizations happen or something like that. Nice. Um, and then the sec- and, and then the argument continues on by asking, okay, well, are these potentials uh, self-realized or are they realized by a series of other realizations, right? And the, the argument states that um, these potentials can't realize themselves. So the actualizations aren't self-actualized. And there's a few reasons to accept this premise. Um, One is it just seems to be self-evident that potentials don't realize themselves, that they have to be activated by something other than themselves. Hmm. Um, Acorns just don't all of a sudden by themselves become oak trees, and infants don't all of a sudden by themselves become adults, and Raven all of a sudden just by herself doesn't transform into... um, something that looks like a human. Rather, something else is actualizing these potentials in them. Um, But if you don't buy the self-evidence of this, then you could appeal to this just kind of matching our experience of the world, that whenever we find something changing from one thing into another thing, we search for a cause or something to actualize this potential, and we find it. So we've never found any thing that has actually caused itself to come into existence or any change that has changed itself or any potential that has realized itself. Um, So it kind of just matches our experience. And if we don't find something, um, then we kind of chalk it up to 
uh, the idea that we don't have enough data, that there's actually an explanation there, we just haven't found it. And that's served us pretty well in, in life. Um, another reason that you might want to accept this premise is that uh, if potentials could realize themselves, um, why isn't this happening more often all over the place? Just things um, self-realize randomly. It'd be a miracle um, if this weren't happening more often. If this weren't true, the potentials don't realize themselves. Uh, yeah, the potentials don't realize themselves. Um, and then there's the last reason, and this is the reason that I find most compelling, is that it seems to result in a contradiction. So if a potential could actualize itself, then it seems that that potential would have to be actual already. But if that were the case, then it would be both potential and actual, and potential just means not actual, so it would have to be not actual and actual, and that's a logical contradiction. So that's another reason why you would think that uh, potentials aren't self-realizing. So that leads us to the conclusion that actualizations are actualized by a series of other actualizations, or uh, potentials are being realized by a series of other potentials that are being realized. So now we've got to ask ourselves if this is the series of actualizations is finite or infinite. And the argument claims that the actualization, the series of actualizations, isn't infinite, which means it's going to be finite. So we need an argument for why the series of actualizations isn't infinite. And here's one way of looking at it. So we would say, if the series of actualizations were infinite, then it seems like nothing in that series would have the power to actualize anything at all. Rather, it'd merely be a series hmm. of pure potentials. And if nothing in the series has the power to actualize anything, then actualizations just wouldn't be happening. But, of course, the argument starts with the premise that actualizations are happening. Hmm. So that yeah. leads us to the conclusion that the series isn't infinite. And here's one way of explaining it that I was thinking about uh, in, in popular culture. So let's say that you're walking in the woods. And you hear this massive explosion over the hill. It's a bear. And you look up over, <laughs> it's, a, it's a bear actually, it's, it's actually Okay, so it's not a bear <laughs> in the woods. It's not a bear. Doing that thing. Right. All right. So you run up over the hill and you see a couple of X-Men lying on the ground severely injured. And these are two X-Men that you're not familiar with. Um, but one of them reaches over and touches the other and they both start to heal themselves. After they're healed, you go up to them and you introduce yourself and you say, hey, wow, that's pretty cool. You're kind of like Wolverine, aren't you? You've got the power to heal yourself. And the X-Men that you're talking to says, no, actually, I'm not like Wolverine. I don't have the power to heal myself. Rather, I'm more like Rogue. I have the power to heal myself derivatively, but I've got to touch somebody that actually has that power. And you mm -hmm. go, oh, okay. So then the other one, must actually have it. So you say, so you're like Wolverine, right? And that X-Men also says, no, I'm not like Wolverine. I'm like Rogue. I only have the power to heal derivatively. And you say, but wait a minute. You guys healed yourselves, but you're telling me that no one actually has this power, that you only have it derivatively. 
that tells me that's just not really possible. One of them has to have the power actually. This reminds me of an example my um, philosophy professor, when I was taking an introductory course, talked about where you imagine an image in a mirror that's a reflection of another image in a mirror that's a reflection of another that that starts with no original thing, right? It, that it just would never happen, right? That's sort of the idea that you can you can get one from the other and no, one from I think, the Yeah, I think that's a perfect example, right? There's yeah. nothing to start the reflection at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I was going to do. I was going to say, now, that's working with just two X-Men, right? I was going to say, now, back that up and start it all over again. You go over the hill, and this time you see an infinite number of X-Men, and they all touch the X-Men to their right, and then they start healing, and you ask, okay, so you're like Wolverine, and you interview every X-Men in this infinite series, and every one of them says, no, I'm like Rogue. I only have this power derivatively. And I'm thinking, well, that can't actually be the case. If you had it only derivatively, then nothing would be actualized. There would be no healing taking place whatsoever. But obviously the healing is taking place, so somebody in that series has to have the power to self-heal actually and non-derivatively. Oh, that's a, that's a great, great example. I love it. <laughs> yeah, So, and, and I love the mirror example. I hadn't heard that one before. So um, it, it came up in a different context, but I, I've used that example lots of times where you just say, you know, you, you're not going to trace this thing back to ultimately nothing, right? It can be reflection upon reflection upon reflection for a really long time, but at some point there's there's some actual thing that's being reflected or that the that whole thing doesn't happen. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So Greg, I've got a question. Um, do, do you yeah. take this argument to be, I, I, as I was thinking about this, I, I, I thought about a way this this argument might be interpreted inductively and one where it could be interpreted deductively or like analytically true of the, so uh, it seems like on the one hand um, you're arriving at this conclusion or some of the justifications you offered involve just observing the world as you find it and seeing that there's always something that causes actualization, which seems inductive. On the other hand, you might think that it's just by uh, understanding what it means to be actualized uh, would require understanding the notion of, you know, something actualizing a thing. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, so um, I think it's kind of a mixture. So when I was defending the premise that actualizations aren't self-actualized, um, I did give kind of an abductive argument that we just find things, um, we, we find potentials being realized, and we never find any potential realizing itself, and so we need an explanation for why that's the case. And we might say that the best explanation for why potentials don't realize their, their, themselves is that they just don't do this. Um, we just, it's just not happening. But then I also gave a, an argument that it kind of results in a contradiction, mm-hmm. and that seems to be a deductive argument, right? Mm-hmm. Where if you understand the idea of uh, potentials being realized, then it just can't happen without something being actual. Right. So I, I, I think hmm. there's, you're right that there's a couple of different ways uh, to be looking at this. And then the, the argument that a series of actualizations can't be infinite, uh, that one seems to be more deductive uh, than abductive or, or inductive. Again, if Great. you understand what it means to be actualized, you come to the conclusion that, um, that there's a starting point to it. 
Great. So what led you to choose this argument? What do you, what do you find compelling about it? I mean, you've, you've made a pretty good case for it, so maybe you partially answered that. But um... so, so let me finish up just a little bit. There's a few more steps to the argument. Oh, sure, oh, sure. Yeah, great. Um, so we've gotten to the conclusion that the series is finite, which means it's going to come to an end, which means there's going to be a terminating point. Um, and then that terminating point is going to have to be something that is purely actual. It has no potential in it. And so um, at the beginning of this, I said we call it the uncaused cause or the unmoved mover or the unchanged change. I actually prefer it's the unactualized actualizer. It's um, catchy. Rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> <laughs> I've only had to practice it for an hour before talking. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Um, or, they, or they call it pure act, um, or actus purus in Latin. And what I find interesting about this argument is that you start from ordinary experience, and you get to something so different than ordinary experience. Um, I don't know how much different you can get than that there is this thing in the universe that is purely actualized, that there's no potential in it whatsoever. And when I grew up thinking about God, um, I kind of thought about God in very personal terms. He's something like me, just greater, right? He's always been around. He's got a lot more power knows a lot more things, is much nicer than I am. Um, I don't know, you're pretty nice. (laughs) (laughs) Then you don't know me very well. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But but now, right, thinking about this argument, it's telling me that God is radically different than anything I've really experienced in the world. And that the things I experience in the world can lead me rationally to the existence of this, of this object. So like I said in, in the beginning, it's, I find it interesting because it's forcing me, the more I think about it, it's forcing me to change my conception of who and, and what God is. Interesting. Great. Yeah, it's great. So um, a couple of things. One, I, I've got some friends and a couple of students about whom I would say they have absolutely no potential whatsoever. <laughs> Do, do I need to treat them with more reverence than... None of whom are listening to this podcast, of course. Right, well, that's part of why they have no potential. <laughs> yeah, we, we won't name names. Uh, I'm not really sure how to answer. <laughs> oh, that was great. So, um, yeah, wonderful. Yeah, thanks. thanks. So, Go ahead. Do you want to deal with a couple of objections? That'd be fun. Yeah, let's yeah. do it. Yeah, sure. Okay, so... One objection to this argument, and this is a very popular one that you find in introductory textbooks or you find it in Richard Dawkins' book, um, The God Delusion, is that this really just doesn't get you to God. I mean, if it works, sure, it gets you to something that is pure act, but this doesn't get you to God. It doesn't get you to something that's omnipotent and omniscient and good and listens to your prayers and forgives sins and so forth. Um And the way that I would respond to an argument like that is to say, well, first off, it was never really meant to do that. Um, It's not, Hmm. this argument isn't meant to get you to believing or to the conclusion that 
there is something omniscient or that there is something that forgives sins or anything like that. It's meant to get you to something that, that's pure act. And of course, in the classical tradition of God, whatever else God is supposed to be, he's supposed to be something that is pure act. So at least it gets you to that point. And I've kind of compared this objection to um, – I tried to think of something in popular culture, but I couldn't do it. Uh, maybe you can help me out. Um, when Henry Ford built his first car, somebody says, well, that's great, but it can't fly. Like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how that's an objection to this vehicle here. It was never meant to fly. So how is that a problem? Right. I, well, so, let me give you a pop culture example. Um, I mean, that's okay. pretty consistent with what you're saying. I think we see this all the time, right? So, um, you know, there'll be a, a Will Ferrell movie or something out, and, and at least some percentage of the critics will be like, yeah, but, you know, this isn't Citizen Kane, right? But it was right. it, it never intended to be. Um, you know, if, if, you're, if you're worried that your, you know, slapstick comedy is not sort of sufficiently lofty, you know, right. you're, you're missing the point. This reminds me of, uh, this isn't a pop culture reference, but it reminds me of what, uh, of, of kind of a res- responses to the cosmological argument, too, when you get the existence of uh, the universe is, or the explanation for the existence of the universe is a necessary entity. And people say, but that doesn't get you God. And it's like, well, it was answering the question, why is there something rather than nothing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I've taught this many times, too, with the same thought that, that Rachel has, that, you know, if you're, if you're rejecting this, do you really want to hang your hat on, great, so there's an independent being, right? <laughs> something not explained by anything else, but... But ain't God, right? I mean, it's a, you haven't proven that. Yeah, okay, it's, well. <laughs> it's a, I mean, you get something pretty godlike at that point, um, you know, or something right, that's right. got a good chunk of the way there to the the rest of the picture. So. Right, right, exactly. But I'd also respond this way: is like, okay, so we could also start thinking about what this um, entity that is pure act is is supposed to be like. So, sure, the argument gave us no reason to think that it's omniscient. But once we start thinking about the nature of this being or thing that is pure act, then we might come up with other reasons to think that that would lead us to it being omniscient or lead us to think that it's omnipotent or all good and personal and so on. Mm -hmm. So it's not that there are no reasons. There might be independent reasons to think all that about the thing that is pure act. But, of course, there's no reasons in the actual argument that I presented today. So let me take a stab at this. So you could imagine somebody saying, but it's not omniscient. And then you'd say, well, if there's something that it could potentially know, then it, then it has this potential and it's being actualized rules that out. So that must include the, the knowledge of X, whatever it is. (laughs) And if there's some act that it might perform, but hasn't um, right. Cause an omnipotent being can perform any action. Um, then you might say, well, it has the potential. And it's like, no, 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 no potential here. Um, or it might have you know, some power that it could potentially obtain. So would that be the idea that you, you start teasing those things out from the lack of potentiality? Yeah, some, something like that. So, hmm. so you, you say that there are things that have the potential to know things. And you ask, well, how did that potential get realized? Well, then you would trace it back to something that already actually knows. Mm-hmm. That's how the potential to know things is, is realized. And you've got things that have the potential to do things. They have powers. 
well, how are those realized? Well, that something is power itself. That's how powers are being realized. So there's there's knowledge itself that is being realized. There's power itself that's being realized. And then you would trace it all back to that, that one entity. Nice. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, thank you very much for chatting with us today. You're um, very welcome. Again, thank you for having me. I've really had a good time. We, we appreciate yeah, it. Great. Yeah, nice. Take care. Chad Bogosian teaches philosophy at Clovis Community College in Fresno, California. Hi, Chad. Hi, Chad. Hey, hey, Richard and Rachel. Hey, thanks for talking to us today. It's nice to have you here. Yeah. Oh, thank you for having me on the show. It's uh, very nice to be a part of uh, this discussion. Great, great. So let's dive right in. So our, our topic today, as you know, is arguments for the existence of God. Um, can, is there an argument for the existence of God that you maybe find most interesting or most compelling? And, and if so, can you explain that um, for our listeners? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, one of the arguments that I find most compelling uh, is part of a family of views uh, called um, cosmological arguments. And the particular one I'm interested in today that I want to explain is the um, contingency argument or one variety of a contingency argument. And the, the basic idea here is it seeks to answer the question, why is there something rather than nothing at all? And there's a lot of ways this could go, but I want to just, in, in the interest of time, narrow down on the universe. So the gist of this here is, you know, uh, our universe is, is a contingent being. That means it, it could have not existed. Um, and that seems to be backed up by the different cosmological theories that are out there, whether or not a person believes in God, uh, that the universe, as we know it, as we encounter it, could have not existed. And then from there, uh, it goes into that, you know, anything that's contingent requires a, a full explanation for its existence, a, a cause or some kind of full uh, explanation. And the cause or full explanation for the universe uh, has to be something other than this contingent universe we find ourselves in itself. Um, then, then it goes, well, what, what causes or fully explains the existence of our universe? Um, it, it has to be something either that's solely contingent, so, so the chain goes on of contingent sort of explanations to explain the universe, or it has to be non-contingent, that means necessary. That is a, a, an explanation or a being that uh, could not not exist. And then... Um, and then from there, the contingency argument says, well, look, contingent beings alone can't fully explain the universe. And so it follows from that that the cause or explanation of the universe isn't contingent. It's, it's necessary. And the best candidate for this necessary being is, is a God that's eternal and self-sufficient and self-sustaining. And his own being isn't depending, dependent on anything outside of his being uh, for his existence. And so kind of the explanatory buck stops there, so to speak. Um, and so that's the gist of the argument. Uh, you know, uh, one maybe little tidbit worth adding on here is that, you know, th this uh, necessary being, namely God, w one reason advocates of this argument, like myself, find it uh, compelling is that uh, we, we can't derive from, let's say, the scientific laws of nature, which are themselves contingent and other scientific uh, explanations or categories of explanations so on principles we can't derive from those a necessary being or derive from them uh god's existence even and so it would seem to to push us in the direction of needing uh a necessary being that's non-natural a supernatural being and and god 
um, at least in the traditional monotheisms, is the is the best candidate uh, there for that. And we can explore that more as we go. Yeah, just briefly. So, um, what what might some of the other candidates be? Is it essentially there's kind of really nothing if it's not godlike or? Well, yeah. So if we have, you know, from what we know, right, uh, in in the sciences, uh, from different causes, natural causes, and, and laws, that uh, those causes, you know, it's sort of um, let's see, to be simple here, you know, operate on those causes, right? Pro- provide the conditions of where causes bring about certain effects, right? That we find um, those those are contingent themselves, and so the argument says, well, look, um, if we posit a natural naturalistic cause to explain, let's say, for example, you know, some people will say, look, there's always been a magnetic field around the universe, okay? Um, and, okay, but that doesn't tell us why there's a magnetic field and why there's a universe with a magnetic field. And so a naturalistic explanation right, is going to just kind of push us back a step uh, because it's, it itself is going to be contingent and it's going to be only a partial explanation uh, for the effect in question. Um, we, and we want a full explanation. So a full explanation is going to be one that includes not only a, an answer to the what question, what brought about a certain effect, but it's going to be an answer to the why, uh, why we have the effect. And it doesn't seem like we can have it, uh, that we have any good, honestly, in my opinion, any good naturalistic candidates, uh, natural candidates for uh, a full explanation. They can provide a partial explanation, but but not a full explanation for, for the universe as a whole, why we have a universe as opposed to no universe. So yeah, I think it's going to either push us to something that only partially explains the universe, or it's going to push us back to to, to nothing, right? Um, and from nothing, nothing comes, as the saying goes. I, I'm glad you sort of said that bit at the end. When I talk about this with my students, I've for years felt that they don't quite feel the force of just how deep a question, why is there something rather than mm-hmm. nothing, really is, right? So you yeah. get you know, sort of human type responses to um, at least Clark's version of the cosmological argument where yeah, he says, sure. we'll just explain everything by the cause. It's like, no, no, it's a much deeper question than just, you know, what accounts for this thing? What accounts for that thing? And we'll put the sum of those together. Um, so I, I like the way you, you put that with the, the you know, the, the two parts to that question. So what, what objections exist to this uh, version of the cosmological argument, and how might one respond to those objections? Yeah, great. Uh, I want to start where uh, Richard actually just, uh, what he mentioned with Hume, because the style of the argument I'm giving is, is in the spirit of if Clark, Samuel Clark. Um, so if people want to go Google him later, they can kind of find that. This is different, just to point this out, this is different than like uh, Aquinas's version or uh, other versions, but um, and, and quickly, um, yeah, yeah, sure. Just to interrupt, Clark with an e at the end, right? C L A R K E. So that's right. As, as kids are googling it, um, yeah. Go ahead, Chad. Sorry. No, that's okay. So uh, you mentioned David Hume, and David Hume said, "Well, look, well, maybe we can get you know undermine this argument by saying if, if we have an adequate ex- explanation of all the parts of the universe, uh, then that that allows us to say you know it's kind of a mute point to go back further and say we need an explanation for the whole." So. Uh, either maybe we already have that, or eventually, let's say the sciences will get us that. And as you mentioned, uh, at least one response I find sort of satisfying to that is that, well, that, that doesn't necessarily follow, right? We could explain uh, everything in the ser- all the dependent beings in a series of dependent beings, uh, and just to be generic here, to move away from the universe more broadly, like if, if we, we could explain my existence, right, in some sort of family history, but that doesn't explain as we kind of go back, 
let's say, why there are humans or something or why there's even my particular family. So when we get zoomed back out to the universe, um, we could explain all the parts of the universe, but that wouldn't tell us, again, why we have the the set, right, the whole set of uh, that series of, of parts that, that compose the universe. And so um, I think he, he commits the fallacy of non sequitur. It's an interesting objection, uh, but I don't think it goes through. Another one actually comes from Immanuel Kant, who himself believed in God, and he said something like this. He said, well, the contingency argument um, is essentially smuggling in this idea that God's non-existence is inconceivable. Uh, in other words, we can't imagine that God doesn't exist. But that's just to sort of smuggle in another argument, which is the ontological argument, uh, something that you know we can't conceive of. Uh, we can conceive of the greatest possible being and so on and so forth. Okay, we won't derail that, but uh, you can Google that if you're interested in that. But um, he says, but but that argument's really problematic, and I tend to agree with him in some respects there. So um, if the cosmological argument, the contingency argument is kind of smuggling in the ontological argument, well, then it's going to be undermined by way of undermining the ontological argument. And, and I think he's actually embroiled in a confusion here between two kinds of necessity. Um, we might say that, you know, God's existence to explain the universe, why there's a universe as opposed to no universe, is either logically necessary, and I think that's what Kant had in mind, uh, but that's not what I think, I, um, or logically undeniable, that's all that means, is that on, on pain of, let's say, irrationality, you can't deny the existence of God. Um, I think that's, that's clearly not true. I think there are many smart uh, people that I hold in high regard that can find logical you know, way, ways to demonstrate the you know, that God's existence isn't logically necessary. But what the argument is really doing is saying that uh, God's existence is uh, metaphysically or ontologically, or to use a more simple term, factually necessary. So we need the fact of God's existence to fully and adequately explain the fact of the universe's existence. And so um, if we have a being such as God who's self-sufficient and self-sustaining, um, and it flows from his nature to be the kind of being that has sufficient power and intention and goodness to bring about the universe. Um, that's on the whole going to be the kind of necessity and a better explanation for the universe uh, than, again, naturalistic explanations. Um, and, and there's one other I have from Russell if we have time. But sure. Yeah, we, we do. Okay, so let me give this. I think Bertrand Russell's is just fascinating and one of uh, my fav favorite philosophers of the last uh, – Hundred years or so, but he said this. Um, he said uh, two things. He said the cosmological argument commits a problem, uh, runs into a problem because it commits the fallacy of composition. And the fallacy of composition is that something might be true, let's say, of the parts of the universe, but isn't true of the whole thing. And so, for example, here it might be the case that all these dependent beings in the universe, like you know, trees and animal life and so on. Um, we can explain those in terms of other causes fully and adequately, but, uh, but we don't have to have a, a similar kind of explanation for the entire universe. And so then he moved to say, look, the universe doesn't need an explanation. Uh, it just is. It's a, what's called a brute fact. It's a fact for, for with, which is, there's no further uh, explanation or anything else needing to be said. Now, I think there are a couple of responses to this that I find compelling. And um, because I think that's a really interesting objection he raises. And first of all, we can say, well, you know, uh, it's not always the case that one commits this fallacy when you attribute uh, what's true of the parts 
of some composition to what, uh, and say it's true of the whole. So here's an example uh, to make this more concrete. If I, if I build a wall out of bricks and I say, well, every brick that in the wall weighs a pound, so the wall weighs a pound, that's clearly the fallacy of composition. But if I say, um, you know, the, the wall is, uh, uh, every part of the wall is a brick, therefore the, the wall is a, is a brick wall or something like that, that, that doesn't commit the fallacy. So what's true of the parts, right, is true of the whole thing uh, in, in some sense. And the, the advocate of the cosmological argument is thinking of, the, uh, of that in, in uh, the need for an explanation of the universe in the latter sense, right? That, uh, by analogy, right, if, if the wall is composed of bricks, it's a brick wall. Um, well, the, the universe, right, is uh, ha every part of the universe needs an adequate full explanation, so the, the whole thing does. And, and I think to, to build on that a little bit, I think if we consider that if we take away all the contingent parts of the universe simultaneously at one time, uh, the universe stops existing, right? Um, likewise, if we took away every brick from the wall, right, took it away, there's no, that brick wall doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And the advocate of this argument is, like myself, is saying, well, look, that's, that's a good reason to think that, you know, um, we, we, we can and do need a, an explanation for the whole and not just the parts. And, and there's no fallacy being uh, committed here. Uh, he also had a second version of, of this attack to show that the, uh, you know, to undermine the argument and, and to make the case that it's just a, it just is, it doesn't need an explanation. And it came from quantum physics. So to be super simple here, the gist of it is, when we look at the subatomic level, right, there are electrons and particles that come into existence, and we don't have a cause that we can tie to, directly tie to their to those effects that we find. And so um, this would undermine premise two of the argument, which, you know, we didn't number those earlier, but it, it's the, um, the idea that, you know, w whatever exists needs an adequate explanation. Um, and so this would seem to undermine that, right, because we can find things that exist and they don't have a causal explanation, like electrons maybe. Is the universe like that? That's the question um, I'm concerned about. Mm -hmm. and, and here's here's kind of a, a couple quick responses. Number one, um, it could be with with the this sort of quantum s stuff, right? That uh, maybe either in our cognitive equipment or our um, observe uh, our equipment that we use to observe these things, maybe it's not adequately developed yet, right? Or we don't have maybe there are gaps there, right? Uh, in terms of our explanation. Uh, now, this would be a God of the gaps argument because we're not saying God fills a kind of epistemological gaps, right? It's to say that the gap here, there isn't an ontological gap, but we really need to explain. So even if we had a full causal explanation for why there are electrons, let's say, uh, which I'm open to saying that, that there could be, right? That's part of the suggestion here. Uh, we still, again, would, would have the question of why there are electrons that are brought about by those particular causes. And so, so the advocate here, back to Russell, is saying, you know, maybe what accounts for this sort of explanatory gap, the subatomic levels, that we haven't been able to fill it in naturalistically. And even once we do, we're still going to be able to ask meaningfully, how do we explain that, you know, the, the cause-effect relationship there? And uh, one other thing here, that even if it's true that these things, uh, these electrons or the subatomic particles come into existence and go out of existence, um, it wouldn't necessarily follow that they're uncaused, right? So maybe, maybe we, again, we will turn up a cause. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, we'll still have a discussion maybe on your podcast about, well, how do we explain, uh, uh, you know, this cause-effect relationship at the subatomic level? Uh, why, why are there those things? Uh, and why is there, and even further back, you know, why is there this universe that contains those sorts of things um, and, and that kind of relationship? So nice. you're welcome to follow up on any of that that you have.
Yeah, that, that would be an interesting discussion to have on our podcast, but I'm afraid it might be slightly above my pay grade. Um, <laughs> Such as it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm still sort of at the level of how do you respond to Russell? You just say it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> that sort of like woman's famous, famous response to, you know, um, one of his lectures. Well, Chad, thanks so much for, um, for sharing this with us and um, being on our show. Yeah, thanks very much. Well, thanks uh, so much for having me, and I look forward to uh, uh, hearing what others have to say as part of this discussion. Um, I understand you're going to be talking about the problem of evil, which I think is great, and so I look forward to listening to those uh, upcoming podcasts as well. Awesome. Take care. Rob Arp got his Ph.D. in philosophy from St. Louis University. He's the editor of many books, including many collections on pop culture and philosophy. Hey, Rob. Hey, Rob. Hey, how are you? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing well. All right. Uh, got a little bit of a cold so if i sound raspy or if i cough i'm sorry about that yeah raspy's good the kids kids like that so um <laughs> thanks for for talking to us so let's let's dive right in our, our first question for you is um just simply is there a yeah, particular argument for the existence of god that you find most interesting or most compelling or one that you'd just like to share with our listeners sure i think uh some version of the moral argument uh is what I find most compelling is one that I, I most recently published on in, in a book that uh, I co-edited with a guy named uh, Ben McGraw uh, on, on the devil, um, uh, philosophical approaches to the devil. Through, I, uh, Rutledge's, I have that book. Sorry? Yeah. It's, it's, oh, okay, it's, gotcha. it's, a, it's a lot of fun. Great read, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, feel yeah. free to, so it's on Rutledge and it's, it's called the devil, right? Yeah, it's uh, Philosophical Approaches to the Devil. Philosophical Approaches to the Devil. Great. Yeah, it's yeah, got a yeah. great cover illustration. Um, perfectly yeah, kitschy. That, yeah, then there's a pop culture. That all uh, came about because I pitched uh, through Open Court um, a philosophy and pop popular culture book, The Devil and Philosophy. And so many people came out of the woodwork for that, that um, there were so many scholarly uh, abstracts that uh, um, Ben McGraw and I decided to put together. We put together three more books that were scholarly books in in the space of like two years um, on demonology, hell, evil, and the devil. Actually, four books now that I think about it in the space of two years. But but uh, so oh, just um, quickly, just for the record, I should correct it. It's it's the the devil in philosophy is the one I have that's got that great cover illustration. So I, I was uh, in the seminary for nine years, studying to be a Catholic priest, and um, and uh, so I'm, I'm pretty familiar with, and I, I've been teaching uh, arguments for and against God's existence for some 22, 23 years now, and um, so Kant, Immanuel Kant, um, who lived in the um, in the uh, 18th uh, century, mostly. Um, he uh, is, is usually associated with uh, the moral argument for God's existence. But uh, there, are, there are many kinds of moral arguments and many species of them. Uh, but in general, they, they work like this. Uh, it's, it's very simple. They start with some kind of moral or ethical feature of the world and the universe and then, uh, then argue to the existence of some kind of God as the source or uh, some kind of God that must exist that explains the reason for 
the morality or, or ethics that we find present here in the universe. So that's it in a nutshell. Um, nice. So tell us, tell us what you like about this argument. Why do you, why do you find this one particularly compelling? Now, the one that the specific one that I really, really find fascinating is the one that Voltaire puts forward. And we've heard him say this, the famous line, um, you've, you've heard him say, if God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him. Yeah, yeah. We've all probably heard that before. Mm-hmm. So he, he states that in a, in a, a work called uh, The Three Imposters in 1768. So Voltaire, he was a big satirist and uh, in many ways satirized the Catholic Church. And uh, you'd think he was some kind of an atheist or whatnot, but actually he was uh, a deist. But uh, scholarly work shows that he may even be more than a deist. He was probably more of a closet Catholic than you, you would realize. Because mm-hmm. um, um, when I was doing research for my paper for that, that devil book I was telling you about uh, where I produced this paper, it became apparent that Voltaire thinks that, look, if there's no God, then there's no moral law. And if there's no moral law, then basically all things are possible. You know, we, you know, we'll run rampant and we'll uh, murder and kill and, and we'll do all kinds of crazy things. And so, um, so even if there was not a God, right, Mm -hmm. we would have to invent him to basically keep people in line. So, um, so the, the fear of, of hell and the uh, reward of heaven um, are necessary. And then a God who meets out that justice are necessary um, to keep us in line. Why? Because we look around us in this world and we see that bad people don't get their just reser- just desserts, and bad things happen to good people, right? Like mm-hmm. the book says, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, um, so he says there has to be some kind of a, a God that and an afterlife associated with that God to. Um, um, kind of meet out that justice and i find that uh very compelling now when you say compelling i find that it it tugs at my heartstrings so to speak it tugs at my sense of like it would be nice if it were true Mm -hmm. i don't believe any of this (laughs) (laughs) you know i'm sorry i just i just don't have a faith conviction because you don't necessarily have to have a god in order to have morality right because you've got kant himself you know, had <laughs> formulated a moral system without a God, right? Right, right. At the end of his life, uh, one of the last works he put together was a religion within the, reasons, the limits of reason alone. So he showed how you, you can make religion and God compatible with his morality, but not necessary to his morality. Mm. I've, I've often um, thought that if, if Kant didn't exist, we wouldn't have to invent him. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, that's exactly right. Yeah, mm. so you got, you got his... Um, um, you know, of course, his transcendental realism, um, excuse me, his transcendental, um, uh, I, yeah, transcendental realism or transcendental idealism, transcendental idealism, excuse me, um, has God as a necessary component. But, uh, of course, you know, we, we can't prove God's existence, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, of course, you've got like the, you got a utilitarian system that doesn't need a God, and even Aristotle's virtue ethics, um, doesn't need a god surely not a god 
in the Judeo-Islamic Christian sense of one that uh, has some kind of a mind that or a will that cares uh, about the universe uh, and wants uh, humans to kind of come back and live with that God. So there's all kinds of uh, uh, so even though I find it compelling, I, I don't really believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, although it's amazing how many people will say, and I've met in my life, because like I said, I was in the seminary, said to be a Catholic priest, and I've known a lot of Christians who will say, I just can't do it alone. I need, I need God, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so one of the things I say at the end of this paper is, um, look, if, if you need God, and, and if you're like a murderer or a drug user or an abuser or a horrible person, and that God is going to turn your life around and make you a better person, and that becomes a useful fiction for you, then have at it. Yeah, it's only when, like, you know, I live in Kansas, right? It's mm-hmm. only when the whole God thing kind of, like, oversteps its bounds and we start saying stuff like God hates facts <laughs> or the whole, you know, oh, we're going to teach, evolu- you know, teach creationism in schools along with evolution. Then we have to slap those crazy people down and mm-hmm. say, look, it's just a fiction. It may be useful for you, but, you know, it's just a fiction. Like I said, well, I find it compelling um, on one hand. Um, I, you know, I talk about this with my wife and, and, and probably will with my kids eventually, that if what you mean by faith in God is belief in God and what you mean by that is just hoping but not being sure, uh, sure, I hope that there's a God and I hope that justice is meted out, but do I really believe it? No. <laughs> but, but, but you know what? go to church every Sunday. I play drums at Catholic church every wow, Sunday. Wow, that's really oh, yeah. interesting. Wow. Yeah, and guess I haven't missed a beat in uh, like 30 years. But oops. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, you know, I, I play the ukulele and um, the, the churches lock the door when they see me coming. So I, <laughs> oh, my I, I, I just stay home and watch ball on Sundays. Um, oh my goodness. Yeah. You, know, uh, you know, this Christmas I just bought my daughter, my 15-year-old daughter, a ukulele. And she's been playing it like crazy. And playing it, and playing it, and playing it. Yeah, they're they're great. I just, for Christmas, bought myself, um, with a a gift that I received, um, my 10th ukulele. (laughs) We're swimming in it. I've been playing it, and playing it, and playing it, and um, since Christmas, I've I've moved up a notch, and now I'm at 11. Um, Well, you are at 11, and how many times have you played Somewhere Over the Rainbow? um, (laughs) A good number. Yeah, quite quite a few. Um, but but um, you know the the ukulele Ike version, not the um, the is version. So ah, okay. Yeah, it's it's, it's the other. Um, but yeah, we, we shouldn't talk about that in any sort of public way. Um, <laughs> yeah. So well, great talking to yeah, you, Rob. We appreciate your your insights as well as your candor. Um, take care. Yeah. yeah. The, the other thing is, um, uh, in, I, I also talk about this argument in. Uh, I've edited, co-edited a lot of these philosophy and pop culture books. Uh, there's one called Tattoos, I Ink, Therefore I Am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's in that uh, Wiley Blackwell. Bill Irwin does that Wiley Blackwell series. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was one that um, he didn't do, but Wiley Blackwell did. Was It was called Philosophy for Everyone. Mm-hmm. I think so Fritz this, Allhoff was editing that at least initially. Was, so yep, yep, he was the one, and then they did it, and then they they decided to stop doing it. And mine was, I think, one of the last ones. 
Oh. So it's mm -hmm. tattoos, philosophy for everyone. I ink, therefore I am. <laughs> and there, I I I, I wrote this uh, fake dialogue, which is based upon a real dialogue that I had in grad school between some friends of mine who were um, atheists and then and me who was a theist at the time. And so I talk a little bit about this moral argument there mm -hmm. as well. So nice. So we'll, we'll direct our listeners there if they want to um, to read a little bit more about it yeah great all right oh, great and, and i'm gonna keep listening to your podcasts great you guys are you were telling me you guys are now all over the world huh? well not yeah. all over it but we're we're in in 16 countries um so it's um that's a, it's a start yeah <laughs> that's good yeah that was good we're, we're not hating that fact Cool. All right. Okay. Thanks so much. Take care, Rob. Well, I don't know about you, Richard, but I learned some things today. There were some arguments there that I hadn't considered before, or at least some justifications for premises that I hadn't thought about before. Yeah, this is interesting stuff. I teach this all the time, and um, I'm, I'm going to draw pretty heavily on this and sort of revise some of my philosophy of religion lectures. And There's a lot of good nuance that I can add, right. so I, I really appreciate our guests. So to our listeners, whether you're believers or non-believers, uh, these arguments are arguments you can grapple with and see how they... Uh, see how they work with your own worldviews and how you might respond to them or how, or perhaps how you might adopt them. Mm -hmm. Also, there's the whole issue of tithing. Um, if, if you're you know, wanting to tithe, but you're sort of on the fence about religion, um, you can always go to our page, I think com, click on the link that says donate, um, and become a, a patron of this podcast. Maybe in the future we can do an episode on blasphemy and, and then assess whether that does or doesn't cross a line. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, don't call it tithing. Just call it, um, you know, sponsoring the arts. <laughs> well, anyway, yeah, thanks again to, to all four of our guests. That, that was a lot of fun. Well, that's a wrap. Episode 16 is in the can. And once again, everything has come up Charbonneau. So this wraps up season two. Um, what do we have on tap for season three, Rach? Well, uh, like we mentioned, we're going to start with an episode on the problem of evil. And we've long promised we're going to do an episode on The Handmaid's Tale and philosophy. We're definitely going to do that next, next season. And then, of course, Richard's got a book coming out on uh, the philosophy of spoilers. So we'll do an episode on that topic as well. Yeah, maybe, I, I don't want to spoil it, but maybe the remaining six episodes will be on that. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> it's a secret. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll, we'll see you in four or five weeks. Bye.